It is health that is real wealth and not pieces of gold and silver. That is a quote by Mahatma Gandhi. Welcome to Trina Talk. This is the podcast where guests share their stories of pursuing their passions, living a fulfilled life, and empowering others. Each week, I talk with inspiring leaders, business owners, and people with amazing stories from around the world in unscripted conversations as they share their successes and failures. This podcast is all about empowering you to keep striving in your personal and professional life. I am your host, Trina L. Martin. Hello, welcome to episode 153. The topic of this week's episode is Best Patient Advocate. My guest this week is Barbie Engel. Barbie is a best-selling author, reality personality, and lives with multiple rare and chronic diseases. Barbie is a chronic pain educator, patient advocate, and president of the International Pain Foundation. She is an advocate for all with chronic care conditions involving chronic pain, as well as their family, caregivers, healthcare professionals, and public. After becoming bed-bound and using a wheelchair to get out of bed, it took three years for Barbie to get the proper diagnosis and another four years to get the proper treatment. Barbie knows firsthand how hard it is to continue looking for relief, perfect answers, and then coming up against healthcare professionals who blow you off and do not believe what you're saying could actually be what you're experiencing. Hello, Barbie. Welcome to Trina Talk. Hi, Trina. Thank you so much for having me. I am so excited. I've been waiting for this interview because you are doing some amazing things and some of the things that I think everyone needs to know about. And how I usually start off the show is I'll ask the guests who you are and how you came to be the Barbie that you are today. Who I am. That's huge. I actually do a whole session just on who I am. So the short version is I'm a patient advocate because I am a chronic pain patient and rare disease patient myself. And I've been living with uh, rare diseases for the over 20 years now, about 22 years. And I had to navigate the health system and did a very poor job of it for years. And once I understood the system and how to navigate through that minefield, I was then called upon to, by God, uh, Jesus, to bring this to the public and say, hey, you can get better access to healthcare. And I had to go through all of the challenges and the road and roadblocks and everything that I did so that I can help everybody else. So they don't have to have the same journey that I went through. And that's wow. how I got to where I am now, because I've had to go through all of those challenges already and have come out the other side for a lot of them. Wow. You know, and it's something very dear to me because I have had issues with healthcare, and, and you know, I've been watching things and, I, and I'm pretty sure you have as well about um, doctors that don't take good care of you. And especially if you're a person of color, they kind of dismiss you. Yes. Um, so it's very um, something that I'm very um, sensitive to. Absolutely. So, I come from a mixed race family and um, I, I am mixed race myself, but I look white. So I get better care than some of my siblings who 
are definitely not white. <laughs> and they, them and their children, I've seen the difference that, that you speak of. And I know that the care that I received was not always good. I've been overtreated and undertreated and mistreated. But I'm appalled when it happens to my family members who don't look as, as white as I do. And they go through traumatic, terrifying times. And I see the difference when they get me on the Skype with them at their doctor appointment, the care that they receive or at the emergency room, the care they receive literally changes. And it's so sad, but so true. So it's definitely something that needs to be paid attention to and changed. Wow. And that's interesting. You said that and we'll we'll circle back to that. But I want you to tell the listeners about your journey and tell us about because you say you suffer from chronic pain. And tell the listeners that are listening, what pain, if you don't mind sharing, what pain is it that you suffer from? How did this come about? How are you um, recovering? And what was your journey as far as the medical process and getting these things diagnosed? Yes. So this is going to be interesting. So listen up. (laughs) So I first had endometriosis, which is something that females uh, have. It's when your bladder or your uterus grows outside of your uterus and starts connecting to other parts, including your bladder. So I had to have a full hysterectomy and oophorectomy. I I went through that for a few years with different treatments and surgeries and medications. And I thought I conquered the world when I got past that. Little did I know that was just the prelude to a rare disease called reflex sympathetic dystrophy. Reflex is anything in your body that's automatic goes haywire. So swallowing my stomach digestion, it affects my internal organs. uh, It affects my blood flow. Then sympathetic is your nervous system. And that causes burning fire pain. And it's very difficult if it can even be extinguished. Um, I go in and out of remission with treatments now. And dystrophy is loss of muscle and bone. So I'm quite weak, although I I look um, pretty healthy. What actually is going on inside my body is terrifying to um, the everyday living and and just having normal strength. Sometimes I need help opening a ketchup packet or a bottle of water. So it definitely has affected every aspect of my life, uh, financially, emotionally, physically. And um, it, it took about three years to get the proper diagnosis for this rare disease because providers don't know about it. I saw 43 providers before I got a proper diagnosis. The first 42 either didn't accept what I was telling them. I didn't know how to talk to them. I was not using my adjectives when I was describing what I was going through. Uh, They never heard of the disease. One doctor, I said, I have been doing research on my own. I think I have this RSD. And he said, 100%, you don't have it, but never tested me. And um, I just kept on going because I knew I would not give up the life that I had. I was the head coach at Washington State University for the cheerleading and dance program. And I was in the top five in the country. And I had built that program up for nothing. I was the first coach that they ever hired. And um, eight years in, I, I got RSD after a minor car accident that triggered it. It was already in me. But it started attacking me at that point. And I spent about seven years bed bound and wheelchair bound and finally got, even though I had a diagnosis after three years, another four years before I got a treatment that worked. Wow. I'm I'm sitting here because I'm trying to write down all my questions. (laughs) It's a lot. I told you it was a lot. And so 
um, I, I have learned to navigate everything in the health system because I had to switch insurances. My husband, uh, my second husband, my first husband couldn't understand how I went from active athlete coach, fully functioning to bed bound. And that ended in divorce and God brought me somebody better who was understanding. And we kind of figured this out together on the journey. Wow. Yeah. I'm, you know, this is, Ooh, I just got so many things and coming through my mind. It's like, Oh girl, we need to have another session. Cause this is just, so our car accident triggered it. Yes. Now the things that you have, the RSD, is this like, is this hereditary? Is this something that's hereditary? No, I, I, they do not believe it's hereditary. Although there's been some studies, nothing's turned up to be hereditary, but they have found two autoantigens in our blood. There's just no test in the United States. So other countries are further ahead on this rare disease than they are here in the United States. But I happen to have a brother with this condition and one of my stepsisters passed away from this condition. And so it is something that was in our past. Um, Her father and our father, my brother and I, um, were military and um, were around Agent Orange. So it could have something to do with chemicals that were used during Vietnam and the exposure that those soldiers got. It could be, um, we used to chase the Mosquito Man when we were little, like on the East Coast, they have Mosquito Man. I don't know if that's in Texas or other places, but um, it is. Okay. So on the, in Arizona, we don't really have mosquitoes, so we don't see it here. But back east, they had the mosquito man and all the other parents would make their kids come in. But our parents weren't home. Most of the time they were they were off working and we chased the mosquito man on the bikes behind him while he was spraying going mosquito man, mosquito man and alerting everybody that there's the mosquito man going through the neighborhood. I don't know why we thought this was a need. But um, we got a lot of chemical exposure. So it could be from that as well. Wow. Oh, my goodness. So I'm okay. So I'm thinking so. So I have a friend, a very good friend of mine. She was diagnosed with MS. And, you know, and I was just kind of like you. I was asking her questions and I was like, well, how did you know? How does it feel? Whatever. And she was saying looking back over her life as she was younger, because I mean, she wasn't diagnosed till she was in her 40s. Mm-hmm. She said how she would have different spasms and things going on that now she sees was the MS. Did you have any signs like that of this before it actually became full blown? No, it was like a, eight seconds changed my life. It was a switch. And um, I knew my stepsister had it. And My brother had some symptoms, but he didn't really talk about the burning fire pain. Mm. And, but he had it, he had broken his wrist back in, in uh, middle school. And so he just thought that everybody lived in pain. He couldn't remember a time with no pain. So he didn't realize as we went through my situation, we realized and discovered, Hey, there was a, there was not symptoms for me until it triggered. There was nothing. Once it triggered, the doctor should have noticed my skin looked blanched and, mm. you know, it, it looked like I had spider ribs all over my body. And when I come out of remission, that blanching comes back. 
And so they should have been able to tell from my skin um, what was going on. But if, if the providers don't know, then they don't piece it all together. But that was like one outward symptom that was very apparent that you could see. And my brother had that since he broke his wrist. And my stepsister, actually, after a car accident, she started having discoloration. But then in college, she had a gallbladder surgery. She didn't get diagnosed till college, not realizing that she actually had it since childhood. Uh, but for me, I was 29 and it hit me out of the blue. And one day I was a doer and the next day I could barely live. Wow. Wow. And you were bed bound for seven years? Yeah, bed bound. When I did get up, I used a wheelchair. Eventually I got an electric scooter because my husband would always take me where he wanted to go and I wanted some freedom. So I did get a a scooter that I could go where I I chose to go instead of where I was taken. Uh, But um, literally, sometimes I have to crawl to the bathroom just to go to the bathroom. I would take a shower maybe one to two times a month because every single uh, drop Mm. of water felt like I was hitting, getting hit with hypodermic needles all over my body, anywhere it hit me. Um, Baths were were painful. The pressure from the water was painful. So it it literally changed my whole life. I started using um, Bed Bath & Beyond had a product. They discontinued it, but it was like a washcloth that you could wash with. Mm-hmm. Um, they had pretty smells and, and, um, so I would like use those to, to bathe with and, um, shower or bathe in an actual bathtub as little as possible, yeah. um, for all, for all of that time, chronic vomiting almost daily, um, migraines, passing out vertigo, where I think that I'm sitting upright and my brain would just tell me all of a sudden that I was on the ceiling and that I had to get back onto the floor. And so it was just a uh, um, random vertigo and it, well, I, I could be sitting, I could be laying down or standing up. It, it would hit and you just didn't know when on top of that burning fire pain, I started having other pains that came and went um, and they called those flares. But at the time I didn't know what a flare was, but I would have electric pain as if lightning came out of the sky and hit me. And it would be random parts of my body. Um, sometimes it felt like someone was using a jackhammer on my back, um, cutting, burning, stabbing. The burning was always there, but the other pains came and went depending on what I tried to do, which could just be getting up out of bed to go to the toilet. Uh, so it was, it was quite a bad seven years. Oh my goodness. Wow. Wow. So since you are a patient advocate, Let's talk about that. Let's talk about your journey getting this diagnosed and what you went through as far as with the doctors and what you've learned and what now you're trying to educate people on what they need to know when they're having any kind of issue going to the doctor. For me, getting diagnosed was very difficult. So I would go into a doctor's office and I actually had one that told me, I know what you're trying to do. You're not going to get away with it. And he turned around and walked out of the room. He never examined me. And, um, and then he, he actually wrote notes as if he had done all these tests and things on me that he never performed. Um, so I had that stigma of like crazy woman who just just doesn't want to work. She just, 
you know, nothing's wrong with her. He never even examined me, so he didn't know what was wrong. Um, but um, so I had those type of experiences. And then um, when I actually got diagnosed, I went in and that third, uh, 43rd doctor said, Barbie, bring all your medical records first. I want to go through them. And he actually sat and read through at that time, three binders that are three inches thick. So nine inches of medical records. He read through all of it before he came in to, to actually see me for the first time. And he said, I think I know what's going on. I'd like to do this test. I think you have this rare disease. And I said, give me all the information. At this point, I'm going to go home and study about it because I had already been through a point where a surgeon told me, you need to have your rib removed, your first rib removed. And if you do not have it removed, you will die. What? Yes. He told me I was going to die back in 2003. So I rushed in within a week. I rushed into surgery. He did the surgery. And um, when I came out of surgery, I went through five lung collapses. One was a full collapse where my life flashed before me. Yeah, it, it's it's crazy, the, the treatment that I received. Lo and behold, I had a rare disease. The surgery was the last thing I needed. There was just so much swelling in the area because of the RSD that he didn't recognize. He took out my rib, made a mistake, left two bone spurs. One was poking into my lung, which he said, sometimes after surgery, some people's lungs just spontaneously collapse. Well, I actually had a bone spur going into my lung, causing it to collapse over and over. And then I, the second spur was hooked around my brachial plexus nerve bundle. So the original pain was in my face, neck, shoulder, and part of my arm. And after that first surgery, it was my full arm. And then uh, by the time I had the next surgery, it was my whole entire right side of my body because they had to do a corrective surgery to fix what the first doctor did. And, and then within another couple of years after that, by 2006, I had full body involvement, organ involvement. And um, it, it really, had I not had that rib removed, I wouldn't have gotten as bad as I did, but that just started a whole nother train of reaction. My body didn't like, and my body just attacked itself even harder. So it, that's, that got me to the point of getting diagnosed. And once I had a diagnosis, I started researching and I started reaching out to scientists and doctors and specialists with RSD. Uh, one specialist, I heard that he was going to be speaking in Las Vegas. So my husband packed me into the car and took us to this event, which was medical providers only. And um, we got permission to go in, but they said, you have to stay in the back of the room and you cannot ask any questions when the provider's up on the stage. So we were like, okay, you know, we'll follow these rules. And we go in. And as soon as he was done, my husband raced to the front of the room and a circle gathered around the, the doctor that was presenting of other doctors. And my husband stood there and he just waited for a moment of quiet. And as soon as there was some quiet and questions were like slowing down, he said, I have some questions for you. My wife has RSD and you said you were going to talk about this, but you talked about that. And he said, oh, where's your wife? And she, he's like, she's in the back in her wheelchair. And he's like, come on up here. You know, mm -hmm. let's look at you. And he gave me a 45 minute 
session at the conference that taught all the doctors that were standing around that wasn't even supposed to happen. He was just said a spontaneous education session. And, and that kind of started that. And he said, look, I will treat you. I will help you. You have to fly to Pennsylvania. And that Monday I called to make an appointment and his nurse said, there's a five-year waiting list. And I said, no, no, I just met him at this conference. And he said he was going to help me. And she said, hold on. She came back on the line and said, okay, this was 2007. She said, I can get you in in 2009. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So since then, I've advocated to get treatments in other states, including here in Arizona. And now we have six locations here in Arizona where they provide the treatment. So um, instead of having two beds, doing this treatment for the whole country, now we have about 60 different providers in all 50 states that are at least somebody in every state is doing the treatment. So other people are getting the care that they need. God, congratulations. That's, that's amazing. I mean, what a feat. I mean, and this doctor at the conference was your 43rd doctor. No, that was four years after the 43rd doctor. I was over a hundred medical professionals by the time I saw him. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Oh my goodness. (laughs) And I'm just astounded by the doctor who was like, oh, let's just remove your rib. And I, I'm, I was like, really, <laughs> really, I, it, it, I didn't, and I didn't know. And I was in so much pain and I couldn't stop to, th- I didn't think I could stop to think because he literally right. told me I was going to die. Well, I mean, and that's, that's, I would think the same thing too. I mean, that is a human response. You're thinking, okay, but you know what, from this lesson, I know you've learned and tell the listeners about second opinions. And getting Absolutely. other opinions. <laughs> so, so with my gallbladder, my gallbladder just died because it wasn't getting enough blood flow because of the RSD. It restricts the blood flow. So I was eating dinner one night. It was great dinner. Uh, about 30 to 45 minutes later, I was in excruciating pain. And I just, I said, I, I can't, this is different. It's new. And I can't take it. Take me to the emergency room. So my husband takes me to the emergency room. and. They're like, we're not, we don't want to give you, I uh, have a portacath because of vascular constriction. They said, we don't want to use your portacath. We want to put an IV in your arm. I said, it doesn't work. That's why they put a portacath in me. Didn't want to listen. And finally, I said, I'm going to go to a different hospital. And they finally said, okay, we're, we're going to help you. They put me in into an x-ray and they were like, yeah, your gallbladder is dead. They did an ultrasound. <clears throat> they confirmed your gallbladder's dead. You need gallbladder removal surgery. And I said, great. Well, you couldn't even treat me properly two hours ago. So I'm going to stop and take the time I need to set up my, my own team and do this with a team of providers who will do it correctly. It took me, and I know what I'm doing. It took me 30 days to set up a team of providers that from the anesthesiologist to the surgeon, to the prep team, to the aftercare team, 30 days it took to get that all set up to go in and have my gallbladder removed. And I went from about 110 pounds down to about 97, 98 pounds in that 30 days. Cause I could, I couldn't really eat. It hurts so bad. So, um, they, they finally, when I went back for, for a second opinion and, um, the doctor saw me and he saw the test results 
that they had performed at the hospital. He's like, you need this to speed up. We need to get you in like soon. We we can't keep taking all this time. But <coughs> had I not got ba- gone back in and and had that first hospital say, okay, we're we couldn't treat you properly two hours ago. We know nothing about your rare disease, but now we want to give you a surgery. You have to stop and take the time that you need because the aftermath, what comes after a procedure, after the, after the test, after this, the medication, what is that going to do to your life? Is it going to make it better or is it going to make it worse? Um, this past year, I went through valley fever, which is something common in the southwest of the United States. It's a fungus in the ground and when it has earthquakes and um, other like dust blowing uh, storms that we have here uh, in Arizona, it gets the spores into the atmosphere. And since my body's weak due to RSD, I developed valley fever severely, like to the point of pneumonia from it. And I have now have a mass on my on my right lung. Mm. It's already weak because of the doctor who messed it up. And I kept telling them I'm allergic to this medication. The medication is making me feel worse than just the valley fever, which is bad. I was on a breathing machine for three months. Well, about nine months in of telling my lung specialist and my primary care doctor something's wrong. This medicine is making me have all these other problems. I got a pharmacogenomics test and there's no more for me. There's no more try this medication. I now have a test that gets updated. And every time a new medication is updated by the FDA, it updates my results. So for the rest of my life, I will know if a medication is right for me or not. And that pharmacogenomics test showed I was allergic to the medication for Valley fever. And that's why it was causing me all these other side effects and symptoms instead of me getting better. So I still have, you hear me coughing a little bit. I still have some lung issues and challenges I'm going through from the Valley fever, but I'm doing better without medication than with. And until the doctors saw it in writing, they didn't believe that I was actually allergic to it. Man, you know, this just, (laughs) this just upsets me because it happens, you know, and, and we are not doctors, right? So we go to the doctor thinking they know what they're talking about. And you, yeah, somebody told me, oh yeah, you got to have your rip removed because you're going to die tomorrow. I, I would go in and go, okay, you know, but it, you have to have that second opinion. And first of all, yeah. you, you got to be in, like you say, your mind has got so many things going on. When you hear this kind of news, you're already in pain. And then someone tells you this, only thing you're thinking is, okay, this is what I need to do. But I commend you for when your gallbladder finally decided it wanted to die for you saying, no, I'm going to take some time. I'm going to put my team together because even though you were in pain, you wanted to get the treatment that you knew you deserved and that would help and not hinder what you already had. And I think so many times, just we as humans, you know, and we're just lay people. We're not doctors. We don't know. So we go to the doctor thinking um, they know what they're talking about. So we follow their diagnosis, prognosis, whatever you want to call it. And uh, many times they don't know what they're talking about. I mean, or they don't care or they're just pulling something out the air and hoping, hoping that they're yes. right. 
they they're practicing and and we say like healthcare is really bad and i say no healthcare is working exactly as designed poorly mm-hmm. it it is not designed for acute care it's or sorry it's designed for acute care it's not designed for chronic care it's not designed for people of color it's not designed for people that have a chronic illness and so when you present and all of a sudden you become what they term a thick case file like i am they kind of poo poo you shun you put a stigma on you. It, there's already so many stigmas on people as it is. They just add this next one, like, oh, you're supposed to be able to go lift that 10 pound object and move it. No, I can't. I have a chronic illness. They People just don't know. And it's just things that were taught inherently as we're growing up. Trust the people in the white coats. They know what they're talking about. Not necessarily. They're practicing. And that's what we call them practicing doctors, practicing physicians or uh, healthcare providers, but remember they are practicing. And yes, I didn't go through eight years of medical school, but I have lived with chronic illness for over 20 years. At some point, when do I become the expert of what I go through daily? My, I am who I am. Right. I am an expert of. So if I tell you this isn't working or this medication seems to be causing bad side effects or no, I don't want to rush into that surgery. I need to be okay with what you want to do to me. Right. Right. Stop and take that time to be okay. And that is so important. And I hope the listeners out there are really taking heed. You know, if it's not where, you know, it's not life threatening where they they need to get you in today, take that time, take that time, do some research, get a follow-up, think about it, pray about it, whatever you need to do, because It is, you know, and I remember shortly after I moved here to Texas, I had a lymph node in my neck that would flare up, go down, flare, and it started to concern me. And I was like, man, this doesn't look good. Going to the doctor saying, you know, hey, he was like, oh, it's just, and I was like, I want it out. And do you know, he actually gave me the look of like, he was so irritated. And I said, you know, I don't know what this is, so I'd rather it come out and be biopsy because far as I know, I mean, it could be cancer. I don't know. And he was just like, there's nothing wrong. And I was like, I don't care. I want it. No, that's the thing. Unless they look, unless they do that test and they don't know. Right. Until I did pharmacogenomics, they didn't know. My sister who is of color, she literally just went through throat cancer and it was a three-year process. And finally the, she was like, well, She got a a doctor to order a test. She went in and had that test and all of a sudden everything changed. And they're like, oh, you have, you have thyroid cancer. Well, turns out because they waited, there was a whole three year period in there. She didn't just have thyroid cancer. It wrapped around her vocal cords, which she talks for a living. She had a a chance of not, when they went to remove the cancer of not being able to talk. And it turned into throat cancer and spread into multiple lymph nodes in her neck. So they might think, oh, it's not cancer, but until they go in and look, they don't know. So I hope that you are able to find a doctor that would listen and do the surgery for you. Yeah, actually, this doctor, he ended up doing it, but he he was really just when I told him, I was like, I don't care. He kind of he I mean, he really you could see it in his face. He really showed that he was irritated with me. And because I told him, I said, I don't care what you think. And and after that, it's like he didn't even want to see me when I went in for the after visit, the post-op visit. 
I had yeah. another doctor that removed the stitches and talked to me and everything. And I was like, you know what? I don't care what he thinks. This is my life and my health. You are here to do what I ask you to do, you know, because he was like, oh, just it's nothing. It's just and I'm like, I don't know that it's nothing. He doesn't he doesn't know that it's nothing. Right. He doesn't know that it's nothing either. And I'm thinking, OK, you're going to tell me it's nothing today. Tomorrow I could be dead because it is something. Yep. You know, and it just it just really kills me when these doctors dismiss you, especially when you're saying, okay, I, I feel this way or this medicine doesn't work for me. And they think that you don't know that. And like you said, you're the expert of your body. You're the expert of you. Why wouldn't they listen to you when you're saying, okay, I'm allergic to this, or this is giving me uh, whatever side effects. Why do they think that we as people don't know what we're talking about when it comes to us? Absolutely. Absolutely. My, my nephew, one of my nephews, I have seven. (laughs) One of them, uh, he started complaining of stomach pain. My sister took him to the doctor and the doctor's like, oh, it's nothing. He probably just needs to poop, you know, let go home. And a few days later, he's like, started talking about, I'm going to die. I want to die. This pain is so bad. Mommy, if I die, those kind of statements should never come Mm -hmm. out of the child. I said, take your son back. Take him to the emergency room because something is wrong. A child doesn't just bring up death and feeling like they're going to die because the pain's so bad. And and the hospital sent her home. Five visits, like two hospital visits, three doctor visits, five days. And finally, they were like, just to shut her up, because I kept sending her back. I said, something's wrong. Go back. Go back. Your child does not talk like this. Go back. And she finally went back and, and said, I'm not leaving until you at least give him x-ray. Turns mm-hmm. out he had to have emergency surgery on his abdomen. At first, they thought it was his, his appendix. And then they said, no, it's actually an abscess in his abdomen. They had waited so long that normally they go through the front. For him, because it was so dangerous, they had to go through the back. He never, I, I cried. Just hear, hearing him talk and what he went through. And I believe, I honestly believe it was because of his skin color that he was not taken seriously to even be tested, evaluated, or taken seriously. And you, if you know something's wrong, especially if you're a parent, go back and demand. If, and, and my sister said, I don't care if my insurance doesn't cover this. I have the money. I will pay for my son to have this test done literally give him the test. I'm not leaving until you do. And that was five days later and and her saying, I'm not leaving until you do this. Stand up for yourself, stand up for your children. Man. Ooh, man. Makes me so mad that that, that that happened to to a precious little boy. And, you know, and, and they don't care. And it's, it's like, it's so easy to dismiss someone. And that's what's that makes me so angry because, oh, just go home. Yeah. Oh, take a, take a Tylenol. Just go home. Oh, it's nothing. It's this. Well, until you see me and actually examine me, how can you tell me it's nothing? Absolutely. And when he, they, she said that they changed and they started treating them better once they, they did the testing and realized that this was real. It all changed. Yeah. Yeah. Because at that point they're thinking, okay, if he had a die, then yeah, they, it's their fault. So yeah, so n- now it changes. <laughs> exactly, because now they're thinking, oh, malpractice. Okay, let's let's change, let's treat this person. But it's 
it's it's oh. just sinful that that's what it has to come to it's for them not- to take you seriously, you know, for them to finally say, well, you know, we'll shut her up and do a test and then go, oh, wow. Oh, so whoops. Yeah. This whoops. is huge. Right. And then he comes out of recovery and my sister has me on Skype. She's like, it's facing me, talking to me. And my, and the nurse is in the room, comes in the room and she started saying, yeah, he's a little drowsy, more drowsy than normal. But, you know, that happens. We gave him some medications. And I was like, what medications did they give him? I want a full list of what they gave him. And, and this is not normal behavior coming. I've had multiple surgeries, over 50 procedures. I've been under anesthesia. This is not normal. What did they give him? And, and the nurse was like using slang and generic terms and not giving full information to my sister. And when she turned the screen to show me my nephew, the nurse could see me. Mm-hmm. And she was like, oh, that's your sister? Yeah. <laughs> That's my sister. And all of a sudden, she's like, yes. And she gets out and she starts reading the terms, telling me the dosages, giving me all the factual information that my sister needed because my sister also has trouble with anesthesia, which they didn't know. They didn't have in his record. And they needed to know this information. But again, that follow-up nurse did not pay attention or care until she saw me on the screen. Like, oh, Wait, she's got backup. Right. That's her sister. This lady is a little bit different, or yeah. like you know, oh, that's your shorty sister. No, we're real sisters since birth. <laughs> so I mean, so it makes you wonder. So what did she think that your sister wasn't intelligent enough to yes. get the medis the the medication list? Correct. <laughs> that's that was that was my take on the situation that was unfolding was that she did not see my sister as intelligent enough or it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what's happening. You know, we're just going to take care of this and do what we want to do. Cause, right. cause once you know, and you start asking questions, they realize, wait, this person is asking questions. I have to be on my best behavior. If I mess up, if I don't do what I'm supposed to do, they are going to know. And it puts them in a position like, Oh no, but they just assume especially with people of color, you don't know, you don't, you're not educated. You haven't been anything through it through anything like this. And so they can just do what they want to do instead of it should be your choice as the patient or as the parent of a, of a patient to decide what's going to happen or be able to say, this is, you might think this is normal. This is not normal, Mm -hmm. you know? So it, it, it really just brings a whole new, Watching her and my nephew go through those two different experiences has been eye-opening of, wow, the treatment that I've gotten has not been always great, but I can advocate for myself. She's so stigmatized that she doesn't want to speak up because, you know, like at a fast food place, they might spit in your food or they might do this or they might do that. What is a hospital? What's a doctor going to do if they have some type of stigma or prejudice? towards people of color. So she doesn't want to speak up and, and she's learned you like, no, Marty, you or Marty yeah. and Barbie, but I'm like, no, Marty, you've got to speak up. You've got to share what questions you have, what don't take no for an answer. Keep asking and keep figuring out what is best for you. What is best for my nephew? Cause I never want to see him go through that ever again. It's not right. It's not fair. It needs to stop. Mm. 
Wow. Talk about your foundation, the International Pain Foundation. Talk about that. Uh, well, every year our family would do a service project around Christmas time. So it could be going to a nursing home or singing Christmas carols through the neighborhood or um, serving food at a homeless shelter. And every year at Thanksgiving, we would pick our, our Christmas project. And um, the year after I got diagnosed, they said, if this is happening to Barbie, this is probably happening to other people. We can do something about it. And um, they said, let's make this a project for this year. And my dad said, no, wait, this is bigger than that. This should probably be, be like a charity so that we can do more and, and help more people, not just in our own community, but around the whole United States at first. And um, so it started as a family project. In that first year, we just concentrated on RSD. And um, then the next year, we realized this is not just what's happening in the RSD world. This is happening to many people with pain diseases and we need to broaden it. So we, we broadened it to all, eventually all physical, mental and uh, spiritual pain. And um, we went from helping people in the United States to helping people internationally, where now we have uh, a larger board of directors. It's not just our family anymore. It has grown into an international foundation. So we actually changed names from Power of Pain Foundation to International Pain Foundation because it, our scope and our ability to help people around the world had changed. And we do education, awareness, social events, and access to care to help patients get the care that they need to be a voice for them, with them, and to let them know that there is great reason for hope because there is help. Wow. I love that. I love that. And with your foundation, um, do you have resources for people? And um, do you have like maybe some professionals that can speak on their behalf or at least educate them? So like you were saying, ask these questions, because a lot of times we go in and we don't even know where to start because we're so traumatized by whatever is being told to us. So we don't even know the questions to ask. Absolutely. Uh, most of our educational events are free so that people can get the information that, that is needed. And um, we hold about eight to 10 webinars a year. And then we do a uh, conference that, that before COVID was in person. And we we're hoping to get back to that right now. It's virtual. And this year it's three days uh, long, November 11th, 12th, and 13th. It's free to register so people can go register. And um, we also put out daily messaging on our social media site. And we do monthly blogs, sometimes three to four blogs in a month with information of what to ask your providers, how to prepare for a doctor appointment, how to create a one pager so that your doctor has a cheat sheet. If you're a chronic patient to know what are the most pressing issues. So many times patients forget what questions that they have when they walk in the door. It's like a vortex when you go to the doctor's yeah. office and you walk in and you're like, I know all these things. And the doctor walks in the room and you're like, uh, yeah. So like how to write that out throughout the month, how to, how to bring that cheat sheet in with you so that you get all the things you need done completed in that 10 to 15 minute session with the medical provider. And, um, and then even how to live better day to day, we give out tips, tools, and resources for that type of thing. If you are having trouble get, getting diagnosed, or if you're having trouble getting a specialist for whatever condition you have been diagnosed with, 
We on our website, we have a find the provider app. Uh, we actually have two different ones. One's by the AMA and another one by Amino. And that one is not um, sponsored with uh, money that would be a conflict of interest, whereas the AMA can be because they have to pay to be part of the AMA. So that's the only list of doctors you get. Amino goes through all of the doctors in the United States and Canada and gives information on how many patients they treat with those specific diseases and what the potential out-of-pocket cost is based on what type of insurance or cash price that you have. So we have both of those apps on there and they're free to use. And we put them on there. We used to do it by phone and we were collecting a lot of patient data and we said, hey, let's make this a little more private for people. So now you can use it free. It's on our website under the resources tab and, and you can go right on there and use that. We also have a mentor program. So if you're a patient or a caregiver and you need support, help, uh, you have a challenge that you're facing and you don't really know how to start or get through it, um, we have a mentor program where we can hook you up for free to talk to other patients or caregivers that have already been through it. And then we also have medical professionals on our um, scientific advisory committee that if a patient comes through and they're having a lot of trouble getting certain treatments or don't know which treatment to get, we can have a provider look at it and say, hey, here's the idea. Um, we've had patients that have been um, preliminarily diagnosed by this specialist. For instance, uh, a patient with arachnoiditis, there's a leading expert in the world in uh, Los Angeles, California. And um, he, we've taken MRIs and sent it to him. And he looks at it and says, you know, I'm not your provider, but I see this on the x-ray. So this is what you can talk to the provider in your area about and get more help. And if that provider needs to, they can contact the medical professional and get more information uh, so that the pr practicing provider can learn more about that rare disease that, that's involving pain and get those people help faster. Wow. That's, that's really a good thing. I mean, I wish there was somewhere to go for every area of, you know, medical issues, because that's what we need. You know, like we said earlier, we're lay people, so we don't know what to ask, what not to ask, because your mind is just blown when you go into the doctor's office. I mean, I, I go for my normal well woman and they're like, oh, any questions? And you're like, uh, what do I even ask? <laughs> right. right? Like, should I have a question? <laughs> you're starting to think you're like, I, yeah. I don't think so. Right. Um, at, at my last wellness check, they're like, do you have any like moles or weird things on your body that we should be looking at? I'm like, I don't know. What's weird to find right. normal? Like, <laughs> this is just Please. me. So yes, <laughs> if you if you do have a spot on your skin that needs to be looked at, please go to a medical provider and, and ask and, and point it out. Don't wait for them to ask you to see it, point it out. Uh, but I hadn't pointed anything out. And so they're like, hey, do you have anything weird? Like, I, what's, what does that mean? What does weird mean? My skin changes colors. I look like I'm like spider woman with, with spider webs all over me. Um, like red spider webs when I'm uh, out of remission. So is that weird or, you know, I have a disease and it's normal for my disease. Right. What, what's weird. So yeah, definitely it can be, it can be quite confusing and you know, you, so if it's something that you think of throughout, throughout the month or months in between appointments, write it down, have, have a little journal or a, a word document that you can go type it into 
and remember so that when you do go to the provider, you can say, hey, uh, I, I thought of a couple of questions for you. And they're right there and you can ask them and get anything answered. It just ran across your mind over the time in between appointments. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Oh, before we get to our questions, let's touch on your book. Okay. So I've, I've actually published nine books, but my oh. most recent one is called From Wheels to Heels. And so wheels is the wheelchair experience and heels is uh, one of the things I did after going into remission was I bought a pair of high heels, but I actually spelled heels H-E-A-L-S instead of high heel. It's heels is in medical health. So um, it, it, it chronicles my journey of going from the start of having endometriosis all the way through to um, a few years ago when coming in and out of remission and remission wasn't what I expected mm. and the challenges of going through remission. So it's, it's quite a journey that the book talks about, but th throughout telling my story, I include tips and, and ideas and things that people can use to better their own daily living. And just because it worked for me, I don't expect it to work for everybody. Even if you have the exact same background as me, you're my sibling, different things are going to help different people. So find what works for you, figure out what works for you and don't do anything you're not comfortable with. But my story will hopefully uh, spark some ideas and things that you can do that you can adapt into your own life to make your living better. Wow. Wow. And I didn't know you authored nine books, but that's, that's great. And are the yeah. other books, um, what generally are they talking about your other books? Uh, well, a couple of them are the minefield of the health system, how to navigate the health system, how to do a living will, uh, how to get through the um, challenges of facing insurance, doing step therapy, prior authorizations, if you need biosimilars or specialty tier medications, how to go about getting them. For instance, having your doctor sign a prescription about uh, a, a prescription that says dispense as written versus substitution allowed changes the price of the medication. Mm -hmm. So those kind of tips are in that. Um, I did one with my father before he passed away called The Wisdom of Ingle which chronicles five generations of life stories and things that we learn that we tell it through little antidotal stories to teach people uh, life lessons about um, living your life to the fullest. And um, I did a children's book with my brother. I did a book about relationships with my husband and um, about being a caregiver and a husband in his instance or, or wife. Um, with with your partner and and how to keep your relationship strong mm -hmm. and it's it's not just about um, sex but that is a, mm -hmm. for a relationship you usually have sex for it to, to be a good relationship and when you're in pain that's the last thing you want to think about so there's ideas and tips and and things that, that patients can use in in that book so I, I kind of do health topics related to pain that were challenges in my life that I found ways to overcome and then share those tips with the world. Wow. Very interesting. And, you know, you touched on the, the script writing and I found that out the hard way too, with getting some medication and, you know, going to CVS and picking it up and they're like, Oh, this is $200. And I'm like, what, why is this $200? You know, I want the generic version. Oh, we can't give you the generic. And I'm like, what do you mean you can't give me? Well, the doctor wrote it this way. Well, it didn't have to, because I had been getting generic before this doctor decided, yeah, 
I was like, and I finally just had to call the doctor's office. I said, look, right. I don't care. I don't care if you're in the bed with the pharmacist. I want the generic version. So you need to write this script over. And, and when they saw how pissed off I was, they finally did it. But I was like, really? I'm like, I know there's a generic available. I've done it before. But you want me to spend two hundred dollars on the exact. And you did well on it, and you did well on it. That's like a a cue to like, hey, this works for me. There's some generics. Generics only have to be seventy percent the same. So there's like fillers in them, Mm -hmm. and what that filler is, it can work different. If you've tried a generic and it worked, the doctor should write for generic. Yes. You know, mm, that's sad. Yeah. And, you know, and it's and it's sad and a lot of people don't know that. But, yes, some of these doctors are in bed with the pharmaceutical companies. True. So that's their thing. They they want that kickback. So they're going to prescribe you the brand name when you could have gotten a generic. And like you said, especially if you have done well on the generic. So mm-hmm. it's it's yeah, I can go on and on about that's that. That's question and ask, well, what's the difference? Yeah. What's the difference between this generic? The active ingredients the same. What's the fillers? Right. You know, some right. like there's there's a medication for GI issues that the generic has um, pig intestines wrapping the pill hmm. and the and the brand name doesn't. Well, I can't have pork. So it for me, I have to have the brand name on that medication. Mm-hmm. But another medication, the generic is just fine. And so I can save a lot of money getting right. that generic and it works just fine. But knowing to ask the question of what's the differences and how will they affect me is a perfect place to start for that. Yes. And I hope the listeners got that because that is very important. Ask what the difference is. Then you can decide whether it's going to be good for you or not good for you. So you don't always have to go for the name brand and you don't always have to go for the generic. See what the difference is. A lot of times there's no difference or very subtle. Sometimes it may be, but yep. you have to ask that question. So, exactly. yeah. So don't, don't forget that you have to ask the question of the pharmacist, the doctors, get that second opinion. I mean, Barbara, you have just given us so much information because like I said, and it's been really something that I'm very sensitive to because I've been treated that way. My son, when he was smaller, he was in and out the hospital all the time and it's just something that we just don't know. You know, we don't know how to handle doctors. We we put all of our faith and trust in these people. And like you said, they're practicing medicine. Yes. And a lot of times they don't they don't think we know what we're talking about, yet we're the people who are suffering through whatever the ailment is. So exactly. it's yeah, it's always good to stick up for yourself. And that's kind of what I say, stick up for yourself. And if you have a doctor that will not support you, doesn't support you, tells you that, that he thinks or she thinks you're faking, leave. You have the right to leave. You have the right to go to another provider. Unless you're in an emergency situation where you need active care now, which really at that point, you're not going to be thinking about, does this person know how to help me? You assume that they know how to help you if, if you need CPR or some type of emergency situation, your bone's sticking out of your arm. They're really good at setting the bone and knowing what to do in that situation. If you're talking about chronic illness, ask questions, make sure that you're getting the help that you need and that you're comfortable with. Yes. Yes. Okay. So we're going to move on to our questions because 
okay. we've been <laughs> we've been going. All right. Number one. Yep. Who or what motivates you? Hope. Jesus. <laughs> Good answer. That's what motivates me. What demotivates you? Stress. <laughs> I get get demotivated with stress. And um that that or is, is this supposed to be one word? <laughs> no, no, no. Okay. Go ahead. So I, I would say stress demotivates me, although um when I have fear. I try to push through and know that I'm not alone. Jesus is always with me so I can make it through. You know, I have a hundred percent win streak on waking up every day so far. So as long as I wake up, I'm going to be okay. And don't let fear stop me, but stress does demotivate me. Okay. When was a time that something was said or done to hurt you, but it worked for your good? Well, getting RSD, they told me I would be better in three or four days that I only had whiplash. And here I am all these years later, and I'm using what happened to me to help the rest of the world that needs help. And one in three people live with a chronic condition. So I definitely getting sick was not fun. It's very painful, but I've been able to help other people. And I think that that is fulfilling my purpose on earth. What is your fear? Oh, I have lots of fears. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I try to work and push through my fears. So with, with, with what is my fear? Um, not trying, I'm not afraid to fail. I'm afraid to not try. Mm, Good answer. Is there a time when you wish you had done something that you didn't? Yes. (laughs) So my sister is a professional comedian. And another, she, we were backstage and another comedian, um, she was putting makeup on and, and the makeup shows a different color on the pad. And a, a white comedian said to her, um, I didn't know your skin color rubbed off. And I wish she and I addressed that woman and spoke up immediately. And if anybody presents racism to or around me, I, for now on, do speak up because I can't go back in time with that situation, but I can correct in the future and try to change the world and in, in the people that I come in contact with because there's no room for that. Mm. Okay. Uh, is there a time <laughs> that you wish you had not done something? No, I, I, I'm no, I, um, I, no, I am who I am today because I did all the things that I did, even when I was afraid. What is your definition of success? Being in balance mentally, physically, and emotionally and working towards that every day. How do you recharge? Um, I don't know if I'm ever, even at my worst moments, I don't know if I'm decharged. I feel like, you know, when they say your glass is half full or half, half empty, my glass is always full. The part you can't see is hope. I know it's there, but the outside world doesn't always know it's there. So I'm always charged and energized. Um, but that 
is because I have something that I can see that other people can't. Mm. What are you awesome at? My superpower, my awesomeness is in organizing. (laughs) And um, I'm really good at extreme time cheating or extreme time saving and organizing life so that I can live more life. Oh, what legacy do you want to leave? The, the thing that matters most in life is human connection and be conscious of who you are and how you're treating other people and know that even the person that you might hold the door for or smile at while you're walking down the sidewalk, they might have needed that smile and you made a lasting impact on their life. When you go, when you go to pass away and I had a near-death experience, what I saw was all of the human connections that I had in life as snapshots, it's all stored in our subconscious. It's all part of who we are. Even if you didn't speak to that person or talk to that person, human connection matters. Mm. Tell the listeners how they can connect with you. If they want to uh, help you out with your foundation, get your books, have you to speak, whatever it, it is. So for the foundation, if it has anything to do with chronic pain, you can contact us at internationalpain.org and we're on all the social channels except for TikTok. And personally, you can go to my name, barbieingle.com and you can get information about my media, social uh, appearances. Um, You can book me from there and you can um, get information on all of my books and social media accounts personally as well. Great. Barbie, thank you for being on and sharing your story with me and and the listeners. It was very educational and uplifting, but you taught, at least me, you taught us a lot about just this medical journey and things that we need to really pay attention and be aware of. And I think that's something that is very valuable for everyone listening. Can I say one thing? Yes. Okay. So I think this was an awesome segment. Thank you so much for having me on. And for everybody listening, please go rate this podcast, wherever you're listening from, rate the podcast and let Trina know that this is an awesome podcast and let your friends and family know that you are listening to this podcast and that there's other great episodes that you should be tuning into. So subscribe, listen, keep tuning in. And give a review because that's a way to say thank you. If you like Trina Talk Podcast, please don't forget to go out to iTunes and rate it five stars and leave a review. Also, who else in your life do you know that needs some motivation and inspiration in their life? Don't forget to share Trina Talk with them. I hope you have a great week. And remember, if you change your mindset, you can change your life. Keep striving because success is a journey not a destination.